you're tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. At the stroke of midnight Friday night, the masks can come off when indoors in most places in the islands, but not at airports and on airplanes, and mandatory testing will still apply on some cruise ships. Federal rules are still in place for now. That may add confusion and potential headaches for those who may have to act as enforcers at our harbors or airports. This morning, we talked to Jai Cunningham, spokesman for the State Department, uh, State Transportation Department. Saturday morning, uh, if you have a flight at Honolulu International Airport or at any of the airports across the state, you do need to wear masks. The reason is the Transportation Security Administration, TSA, they mandate what happens at airports across the nation. And they have pushed the date back from March 18th to April 18th for mandatory masking in airports. So while locally here in Hawaii, you don't have to wear a mask when you're outside, you don't have to wear a mask indoors, just know that at the airport, it doesn't matter what the state says, the TSA controls the airport. So you still have to wear a mask in the airport. So that means as soon as you get the curb, you need to be masked up and you need to stay masked up the entire time you're at the airport unless you're actively eating or drinking. So that really is the important message for folks to know is while we are going to experience something we haven't experienced in a few years and everyone's going to be kind of thrilled to not have to wear masks, um, that's not the case at the airport. And it's at least until April 18th. And that's when uh, TSA is working sort of hand-in-hand with the CDC to try and figure out what the next move is going to be. But they extended it a month from March 18th to April 18th. So mask wearing continues at the airport. Okay. And there are other instances where an establishment may require it, right? I mean, it's possible. So it just might be prudent to just have it on you if you need it. That, that would definitely be the case, and that's the case for folks who work at the airport as well. They're mandated as well, so it's not just passengers, it's not just folks who are taking trips, but it's the folks who work at some of the uh, different restaurants, the different outlets. They have to wear it, as do employees that work counter for the airlines, uh, baggage claim. Anyone that's on airport property needs to have a mask on, so that's the case. And, you know, the funny thing is, Over the past few months, I've done a number of interviews out at the airport, and while we were outdoors uh, and you didn't necessarily have to have it on, uh, a lot of the reporters had to sort of start their report with saying why we were wearing the masks, because the TSA mandate trumped whatever the state or whatever your local municipality kind of has in place. So uh, it's been interesting to see how, even if you're outdoors at the airport, And much of our airports, you know, when you're walking uh, along in Honolulu, you're outside basically, uh, but you still need to have that uh, airport, uh, that you need to have that mask on uh, when you're at the Daniel K. Inouye or any of our airports across the state. And I wonder, too, about the uh, workers there who might have to, I guess, gently remind the travelers that they need a mask. I mean, I'm worried that they might get some pushback. That, that could be the case, because even in the past few months, there have been uh, episodes where we've had travelers, especially visitors from different states that have different rules in place, when they show up, not necessarily participate, not necessarily cooperate. So we've had a few instances of that. We would just ask everyone to know that any of the security guards, any of the TSA workers, any of the employees that work out at the airport, it really isn't their mandate. They are just doing what has been told to them and what has been uh, provided by the TSA. So they're just doing their jobs. So we would ask folks to please respect uh, what they ask and please make sure that you wear your mask. And important to wear your mask correctly. It needs to be over your nose and over your mouth. It can't be down on your chin. It can't be just covering your mouth. It needs to cover both nose and mouth. And interestingly enough, the public address announcement that happens about every 10 to 15 minutes We're sort of changing that because some of the language in it was a state mandate, which is no longer. So so we're having to change some of the messaging at our airports across the state as well to let them know that this is actually a TSA mandate that lasts until at least April 18th. Well, you know, I'm just uh, uh, surfing the headlines here, and I see that a group of pilots with some airlines are suing the CDC over the extended mandate, um, you know, having to wear the the mass. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess it's kind of a head scratcher. You know, I mean, the rule is the rule right now. Um, and, you know, whether the courts strike that down, I guess that's another 
question. We'll have to see. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to see. And for right now, uh, we're just letting everyone know for, for the next uh, three-plus weeks, you need to continue to wear uh, the mask at the airports. And, and like we said, that's that's what the TSA has passed down to us. And uh, because we get federal funds and things like that, we need to listen to whatever they mandate. So that's what they have uh, uh, put forward. And, and then stay tuned uh, because we'll see what exactly happens on the 18th. We'll see if they don't ease restrictions or if they continue a little longer. Like we said, the last change they've made was just a month longer. So that's different from what they've done in the past because they pushed it three, six months further along. And now they only went a month. So we'll have to see as April 18th draws near. That'll obviously get a lot of attention uh, nationwide. And what about the safe travels when it comes to our harbors, our cruise ships? Because I'm seeing, you know, cruise ships in port and and wondering how's how's all that going to be affected? So we have three different port agreements. Uh, We have with NCL, with Carnival, and then we also have an agreement with residences at seas. Really the important thing to know is Carnival and NCL because they're the ones who operate the most in our waters. And they've already been operating more than a dozen times that we've had ships come in since late January. In their port agreements with the state, it is said that they are to do testing three days before they arrive in Honolulu. Uh, So both those companies have done that. They provide information to the Department of Health, to the Department of Transportation, to the U.S. Coast Guard as far as any tests, the positive that are on the ship. They also have isolation rooms, uh, and they have the ability for critical care on those ships. So they really have uh, gone above and beyond when it comes to that. If someone tests positive on any of those two cruise lines, they're not allowed to come on shore. Moving forward. We've been in talks with other cruise companies like uh, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, RCCL, which is a large cruise line, and, and, and obviously people have probably heard of Disney. Um, and Disney's first ship is set to come in May 2nd. Uh, so we're talking just a little more than a month away, maybe six weeks away. Uh, those cruise ships with the CDC, they've had to either opt in or opt out of the protocol that CDC's put forward. It's rather lengthy, and we'll probably, uh, in in the days, weeks moving forward, we'll probably share that link for folks to let them know exactly what happens if they opt in. Both those companies opted in. So there is quite a bit of precaution they have to take when it comes to COVID cases. People that are on the ship have to wear masks, things like that. There's a number of different requirements they have to meet. The important thing to know is with both those companies opting in, They cannot a la carte and pick what they choose. They have to follow all of the different guidelines that are put forth for them. So they can't just decide that you'll wear a mask and you don't have to test, that sort of thing. So it's rather lengthy and kind of hard and difficult to explain uh, completely. But there would be some testing involved if folks showed symptoms. And then if they were to do that, there would be a quarantine and they would not be allowed to come ashore. But we've also talked kind of at length internally about this, just know that when the ships start coming in, and even if they don't have a port agreement in place, just know that starting Saturday, the planes that arrive from LA, the planes that arrive from Seattle, the planes that arrive from New York City, there's not any documentation. Those folks don't have to do safe travels anymore. So you don't know if one of the three options, you don't know if they're vaccinated and that's the exemption that they have. You don't know if they're going to quarantine at home. Uh, You don't know if they test 72 hours before. So, you know, you need to take this, um, have some perspective about it, because at the airport, you've got 30,000 people that are going to be coming through a day, and there really is no way of knowing who has been tested, who has been vaccinated. So you need to sort of think the same way about the ships. Um, You know, it's it's, um, very similar. Obviously, they travel in a different way because you're – six or seven days at sea with people in very close quarters, as opposed to five, eight, ten hours of a a flight. But just know that um, we're in a similar spot moving forward. Once we hit Saturday, it's kind of open, and there really is, you know, what we've been so used to for two years goes away, and, and we're kind of back to 2019. We're kind of back to the way people sort of regularly travel. Well, it was interesting because I was walking through Waikiki the other night, and it was crowded on the sidewalks. And I didn't have my mask on, but I thought, you know what, maybe I'll put my mask on because there's an awful lot of people to be just uh, walking by. And, you know, I might be fully vaccinated and boosted, but I guess my comfort level wasn't, you know, it was, it was just sending out some, some signals like, you know, caution, caution. <laughs> just speaking as Jai, 
uh, your friend. Um, <laughs> that's going to be interesting moving forward because a lot of people – I have a lot of friends who say they're going to continue to wear their masks, especially when they're indoors. And then I also have friends that can't wait to not be able to wear them. So – but I think, you know, Catherine, I think you and I would both agree. I think we're fortunate that we live here because I think people are much more understanding and it's much more acceptable to wear a mask. And there's not the sort of venom that some of the uh, other – localities have seen across the nation uh the mass um, so I think shaming we're lucky that way yeah the mass shaming i just want to qualify that's jai cunningham talking right. to you as a friend yes <laughs> that's not necessarily a dot stance i just wanted to let that be known yeah it will be a most interesting social experiment you know as we move forward we'll just have to see what people's comfort levels are at true yeah, but True. the bottom line is that, for now anyway, masks are required at the airports. That really is the important message, because I know all of a sudden on Saturday there's going to be this sort of sense of freedom. But just know that in the weeks moving forward, that's still in place at the airports. And, and so you're still going to need to, when you get out of the car, whether you're dropping someone off or whether you are catching a flight, you need to be masked when on airport property. Okay, good reminder. But thanks so much, Jai Cunningham. Thank you, Catherine. And that was Jai Cunningham, spokesman for the State Transportation Department, reminding the public that masks will still be required at all airports, even though the indoor mask mandates and safe travel requirements will expire Saturday morning. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. We have a story about the restoration of the Ka'ohau name to the elementary school in Lanikai coming up later in their show. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're testing your knowledge of the area. The school made the official change in 2017 after it had been called Lanikai Elementary since its opening in 1964. The name Lanikai was given to the area in the 1920s by its developer, Christopher Frazier, who was under the mistaken impression that he was naming the place Heavenly Sea. Frazier originally bought the 100-plus acres from Monowili Ranch. Then in 1926, he put up the lighthouse-shaped monument at the entrance to Lanikai and announced the sale of 32 vacation home lots on the peninsula. According to Hawaiian tradition, as far back as the 1500s, the area was originally known as Ka'ohao, which means tying together or joining together. The name commemorates a story about two women who played a game with the kahu of a Hawaii Island chief and lost. So for today's Backyard Quiz, do you know what game they were playing? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. NareedHawaii.com. Traditional taro farming in Hawaii faces modern-day challenges from invasive species to predators, loss of land, and loss of water. 
in Waioli Valley on Kauai's North Shore. There is a push for legislation that could be a game changer for taro farmers across the islands. HBR's Kuve Hirishi joins us with more. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Hawaii lawmakers are considering legislation that would provide traditional taro farmers with an exemption when it comes to the state water lease process. And this is an extensive process, which includes, you know, environmental assessments, stream flow standards being set, right of entry permits being requested, and more. And for folks who spend their daily, you know, their uh, days farming taro, finding time to do all the paperwork and going through the legalese has been um, excruciating, especially for these farmers there in Waioli Valley. So House Bill 1768 was prompted in large part by this group of about a dozen or so Waioli taro farmers following the 2018 flood and landslide there on Kauai's North Shore. You know, that it damaged this centuries-old irrigation system uh, that uh, these farmers relied on for fresh water to, to be fed to their taro patches. And through that process, they actually learned, and I think the state learned as well, that the land um, beneath the irrigation ditch system was actually state conservation land and was subject to the state water lease process. So for centuries, mm-hmm. they had been maintaining it themselves um, without knowing that they you know, would have to go through this process at some point. And so uh, third generation Waioli Taro farmer, uh, we've got to meet Bobby Watari, has spent the last 40 plus years working his family's taro patch alongside his father who's still in the taro patches at 90 years old and he says maintaining the water ditch system has always been a part of daily life for taro farmers there in Waioli. For generations whenever we had a disaster which is once or twice a year on a normal basis all the farmers would get together and would go up there and uh, repair all the damages ourselves but the 2018 flood was so big that we couldn't do it alone, so then we asked for help. And uh, we found out that we were on state land, so then we had to go to the legal process, and it's been a challenge until now. From 2018 to now, we're still working on it. So they're still going through the process, and that was a part of what prompted them to um, uh, lobby for such legislation that would allow them to kind of have an exemption, because in one way, you know, traditional taro farming, uh, in terms of a it doesn't divert water away from the stream, right? Mm-hmm. It takes a bit off for a little bit and then returns it to the stream. So this idea of sustainable agriculture is something that um, is sort of supported uh, by our laws here. But uh, these these farmers joined forces and uh, created the Vaioli Valley Taro Farmers Hui and enlisted the help of UH law professor Kapua Sprout uh, in securing that water lease. So Sprout brought along some of her colleagues and a dozen or so students. And they've spent 2,000 hours trying to meet the requirements for that water lease. And uh, through that process, you know, she says this idea of having an exemption for taro farmers to this complex legal process uh, could help preserve the tradition and and keep poi on our, our tables. This is such a difficult way of life as we look at the people who are here today. I mean, folks are in their... 80s, you know, the young folks are in their 40s or 50s. And so if we really want to make this lifestyle available for future generations and to have kalo available on our table so that we can continue to have that ono for future generations, and then we need to put our money where our mouth is and actually take action to make it happen. And that's exactly what this bill does. And uh, early on, uh, the Department of Land and Natural Resources, which sort of oversees the state water leasing process, had mentioned this idea of um, not uh, limiting this legislation to sustain uh, to non-commercial farmers. So this idea of taro farmers who do use the traditional method of farming kalo and may also sell some of that commercially to, you know, line their pockets, uh, they would still be eligible under the the current language of the current version of the bill that's um, on the table right now. So uh, House Bill 768 is up for hearing today at 1.50 before the Senate Committees on Water and Land and Agriculture and Environment. So we'll hear, we'll be hearing more from folks across the state who might support or oppose this this bill, but if it passes, as Sprout mentioned, you know, it could be uh, something that will help future generations of Kahlo farmers or folks thinking about getting into taro farming um, 
actually taking that step and, and doing that because they don't have to go through that extensive legal process and can just get in the mud and get to work. That, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, while it affects these dozen or so farmers, you know, on Kauai, then it could, you know, potentially, though, be far reaching on all the islands. Right. Any any taro farmer, as, uh, as the language in the bill is uh, currently written, any taro farmer that that does so traditionally can go ahead and apply for this exemption once this process, if the bill passes, uh, once this process is put into place. And I don't know uh, what the requirements are going to be at, you know, at some point, some paperwork may need to be done, but nothing like uh, what is currently in place. Do we know what the opposition would be, The you know? We haven't seen any just yet. At first, you know, the initial reactions to adding commercial interest to it was um, there was some concern there. But the idea of traditionally uh, farming taro was sort of the, the, the game changer in that sense. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see what happens today. But thank you so much, Kuve. Mahalo. We have been hearing from HBR's Kuve Hiraishi. You can read more about the story at hawaiipublicradio.org. Some might call it an embarrassment. We were talking about the new Hawaii State Hospital that sits empty more than a year after it was built. That is the subject of today's reality check. Uh, Honolulu Civil Beats e- uh, editor uh, Chad Blair joins us. Uh, good morning, Chad. Uh, good morning, Catherine. How are you today? Good, good. And this story is a, is a story that reporter Kevin Dayton wrote. Right. I'm filling in for Kevin. He's writing yet another story on the legislature. And this this one, whew, it, it does kind of make you wonder. Um, I mean, it really reflects poorly on Hawaii. You have a, a Hawaii State Hospital that, as we know, had all sorts of problems. Remember all those investigations a few years back? And then there's the escapes. Remember the guy that mm-hmm. got out, got a plane to Maui? I think he made it to California. Someone who actually, I believe, uh, a serious criminal but in the psychiatric facility. And so, yeah, lo and behold, last May, there was a media tour about this new facility, $160 million, a psychiatric facility, 144 beds, state-of-the-art, really lots of cameras, all digitally connected, padded rooms uh, for patients that are unstable. And guess what? It's not open yet. And that is what Kevin is reporting on today. This is coming from state budget figures. In fact, the state is asking for more money uh, to fix some of the continuing problems, including dealing with a fire suppression system. Apparently, there's a problem with the pressure in the water system for sprinklers. Like, what if there was a power outage? So it's really a, a nightmare. Uh, the contractor is being held accountable. That's Hensel Phelps Construction. They are working to solve the problems. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm a stunned that, you know, the, the basic <laughs> construction issues like, Okay, yeah. the water doesn't drain from the shower floors properly, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> yeah, and in, in this case, and we're hearing this from from Kurt uh, Otaguro. He's the state comptroller, right, at Dags, mm-hmm. and he was telling lawmakers yesterday, "Yeah, that what happens is the the, the floors on the showers they don't actually slope away." You know, uh, toward the drains. Instead, mm-hmm. the water is flooding into bathrooms and and bedrooms and hallways. And mind you, the, the facility is not open yet. Uh, Otagoro says this is clearly not acceptable. And here's another problem that uh, he was identifying: that there's these um, door handles and hinges. That there's a concern that they could be used uh, for patients to hang themselves. And, and of course, that's something you wouldn't want to have. Those kind of improper design flaws at a psychiatric facility. Uh, so, so just, uh, what is it now? That's three problems <laughs> with the facility right now. I should say it was Dr. Elizabeth Char, who runs the Department of Health, uh, who identified the, the water pressure system as being a problem. Yeah, and, and uh, the deal with that is that, uh, what, that they're just not, where that location is, the pressure isn't where it needs to be, I think, legally, right? Right. And of course, Hawaii in its condos and apartments has its own problems, particularly Oahu with uh, with old sprinkler systems. But it's it's not working the way it should. And so they're they've asked for more money to take care of that problem. You know, and then there's other problems. Uh, Kevin didn't go into it as much in his story, but he did link 
uh, to a star, advertory, a star advertiser story back in October. And this one identified some personnel problems, and, and this concerns the HGEA, the, the public sector union, the largest, uh, and a dispute uh, with hospital, with state officials over, over what is the vision of this facility. Uh, it was described by HGEA head Randy Pereira as basically looking like a prison. In fact, uh, it is intended to treat people who are mentally ill, but there are a lot of security precautions measurements in place. And so that has been a problem as well, is is the very people who would staff the hospital, unionized workers, having a, a difference of opinion over its purpose, the way uh, forward and what the hospital is supposed to do. And, you know, this really is a shame because, I mean, gosh, everybody was so hopeful, thinking we had turned a corner with a new building that would help, you know, morale. It would, it would be safer for the patients because we did have a uh, overcrowding problem, and we were under a co- consent decree, uh, you know, for a while. So, yeah, just when you start to think think that things are looking up, and we're not out of <laughs> out of the, the right. And yet. I would just add, I would just add something else mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, of course, this is in Kaneohe, and anyone who's been there, it's it's um, an amazing view. It's so oh, beautiful, yes. uh, such a, a wonderful place, and and all the more. Uh, really disappointing that this $160 million of taxpayer money <laughs> has yet to uh, come to fruition. Um, and hopefully we'll get an update on the hospital uh, in the near future. Yes, because our mental health need, oh my gosh, it is vast. And so, uh, yeah, it would be nice to have this facility open and in use. But thanks so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. We have been talking to politics and opinion editor Chad Blair for today's Reality Check. You can read, read Kevin Dayton's story and more. Just head to civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Care, a Hawaii health plan specializing in Medicaid health insurance, committed to the health of Hawaii's communities. AlohaCare.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Angie MacArthur. I'm Donna Markova. We're authors of Collaborative Intelligence. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about thinking with people who think differently. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art's Homa Nights, offering entertainment, art experiences, beverages, and bites on Friday and Saturday evenings. Hours and admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. of Hawaii's Richardson School of Law was recently recognized for its diversity and for its international law program. One class offered this spring that caught our attention was on international humanitarian law in light of the headlines with Ukraine and Russia. Hawaii Red Cross CEO Diane Peters-Wynn teamed up with Kathleen Vessels to offer a better understanding of the laws of war. Vessels shared with us how her military experience in wartime spurred her career in international law. So I was in the Army for four years, and I served as a transportation officer. I was stationed with the 45th Sustainment Brigade up at Schofield Barracks and deployed to Afghanistan and saw kind of what happens in war. And then after that, I decided to go to law school. And so, you know, we've got Army JAGs and stuff out there, but I decided not to go Army JAG and went a different route. And kind of had this experience where it's good to have the doctrinal understanding of what's going on and the frontline experience tied with that. And so the first time, this is actually, this year was the second time that I taught this class. And the first time I co-taught with, he's at the prosecutor's office now, his name is Ben Rose, and he's an expert in the doctrinal 
aspects of this, whereas I'm, I would say, more of a frontline kind of practical approach. I did a lot of work with the international criminal tribunals. So I traveled to Cambodia, I traveled to Senegal, and studied more of the international criminal law aspect of it, not so much the uh, IHL aspect of it. But And so it was kind of a Captain Planet approach by our powers combined. We had a an excellent class together of strong doctrinal and strong practical approaches to really what the law of war and the law of armed conflict looks like and what accountability in that aspect in those that aspect of law looks like so it was timely when we first taught it because we had just done the Suleimani killings and the Navy SEAL had just been um, acquitted for the pictures that he had taken with the captured uh, ISIS fighters and so we just had a lot of real-world hypotheticals that we could give to the class. And that's honestly the best way to learn the law of war. And so we applied those in class and used those to teach. And then this year, it was easier to apply other real-world hypotheticals. So, I guess, what is it about international humanitarian law that people need to know about? I'm going to preface this with... I'm not 100% sure international criminal law, the accountability side of it works, but the international humanitarian law aspect of it is important for everyone to understand and for our troops to know because if you don't understand what the gentleman's agreement of war is expected, then there's just this huge possibility for the innocent people who are inadvertently involved in these kinds of conflicts to get caught up in the atrocities that happened in the fog of war and whether or not you mean it, but you still have to keep those aspects of war in mind and that the whole purpose of international humanitarian law is to prevent suffering in war. And so that to me is like the biggest aspect that I really preach in my class and really try and drive home with the students is you know, you, you may not be going out and solving the world's problems knowing this law, but having an understanding of it and having an understanding of what you need to be teaching the troops that you're serving with. We have a lot of active duty soldiers that are in the um, part-time program at Richardson, and a lot of them walk away and, you know, say that there are things in the classes that they are, are glad to have learned and reinforced from their training because... It's something that they have to lead the troops and, and remind them whenever they're going into these situations that the focus is to limit the suffering of innocent people, civilians trapped in these just horrific circumstances. And so that, that's to me why it's important, whether or not it actually works and whether the accountability goes through. Again, you can trim that out. But <laughs> so How does this work? Because you think of, of just general Passion. It just seems that there are some basic standards of decency. It's an interesting story because a, a lot of the history of the law of war arises from kind of the, I won't call it mediification, but the ability to bring photographs to the battlefield is kind of where we saw some of the initial changes in the approaches to war. So before, you know, medieval times, what have you, it used to be the Baron up in the castle had a painting of all of the heroic deeds that he or his knights accomplished in battle. And so war was kind of this romanticized thing. And then in the Crimean War, uh, you had your first instances of the press being able to come and take pictures of what was actually happening on the battlefield. And for that to be relayed to newspapers or for the larger general public to see that War isn't all about heroics. Sometimes it's about, you know, the, the people on the front lines that didn't necessarily choose to be there, that we're seeing that especially in Russia now is, you know, some of them were allegedly told that they were going on an exercise. And then you've got videos popping up on social media where Ukrainians are allowing them to call their moms and they're saying they told me it was an exercise. So this um, mediification of of that's not a word, but the introduction of the photographs and videos to war kind of allowed access. And so you had the Lieber Code in um, 1865 to 1869-ish, and that was really the U.S. sitting down and saying, 
we've got this horrific war going on at home. Here are some standards that we think should be exercised in war. That sort of translated to the Hague regulations as more and more people saw all of the uh, photographs. There was a Civil War photographer who went around and took all those pictures. And as that made its way across the Atlantic to Geneva, you had the Hague regulations um, come up in the early 1900s. And then after World War One and World War Two, you had the Geneva Conventions that all solidified the international understanding of really what we should be looking at whenever we're planning to go to war, whenever we're going into war, and what considerations these battling armies are thinking about as they go forward. And then obviously that escalated and changed after World War II and with the um, Nuremberg trials and how accountability changed changed after that. And then with the introduction of uh, guerrilla warfare, you've You've had a whole bunch of kind of piecemeal treaties that come along, and it's various levels of compliance with that in there. But the basics all arose from people seeing what happens in war and saying it absolutely cannot be that we are allowing this kind of suffering. We aren't allowing medical aid to come to injured soldiers. We aren't allowing the dead to be cared for. Those things were seen as completely unacceptable and put onto paper so that, you know, these warring nations would understand there is right and wrong in war and, and here's what it looks like. I just remember as a child coming across a book with some very graphic pictures of World War One and the Holocaust. I, I just remember being conflicted because I was fascinated and horrified and it was hard to look away. And I remember yep. with the Vietnam War, you know, the one image of the one child who's clothes were burned off and just running, you know, running mm-hmm. in the field and, and just just terror on her face and those kinds of things. Um, and then we see what's you know going on with Ukraine today. And, and I understand as part of this class that you also had a component of, you know, the Red Cross and, and you know, because there's the International Red Cross and there's American Red Cross. And For me, again, it's the frontline experience. And absolutely, anytime that I can get in my students out and working with Red Cross people or any kind of frontline experience and and seeing how you actually apply the law, how you actually can implement and and help prevent suffering through the application and enforcement of these laws is just vital to me and I think really improves understanding of, of what's being taught in the class. And that was Catherine Vessel, who just finished teaching a class on international humanitarian law at the University of Hawaii. Mockingbirds will be brought to the territory this month by Hui Manu. That's a headline from a 1931 edition of the Honolulu Star Bulletin. Back then, it was popular to purposely introduce non-native species. And 90 years later, you can still find a few northern mockingbirds in our islands. Our host, Patrick Hart, tells you what to look for. We got their song thanks to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here is your Manu Minute. Mockingbirds are a recognizable part of the bird world in North and Central America, but many people in Hawaii don't know that we have them here as well. They mostly live in dry woodland habitats on the leeward side of all of our islands, and even there generally aren't very common. Mockingbirds are not native to Hawaii. They were introduced in the 1920s as a songbird and for insect control. About the size of minas, but with a longer tail, they're gray, dark wings that have bright white patches that can only be seen when they fly. One of the most interesting things about mockingbirds is that they can learn hundreds of different songs and often mimic the sounds of other species of birds, as well as frogs, crickets, dogs, car alarms, and squeaky gates. Why do mockingbirds do this? most likely because females prefer males that are the most fit and have the best genes to pass down to their offspring. 
and the best way for males to show females how fit they are is through their song repertoire. Males that can mimic a large variety of different songs and sounds are showing that they're stronger and more experienced than those with smaller repertoires. In support of this idea, one recent study found that while male mockingbirds sang throughout the year, they produced the greatest variety of song types when they're courting females just prior to breeding. Some of our native Hawaiian bird species, such as the apapane, are also known to mimic other species, but none as well as the northern mockingbird. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Biology Department. Support for Manu Minute comes from Dr. Mike and Sharon Scott for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, committed to helping preserve, protect, and restore the biological diversity of Hawaii Island. Friendsofhakalauforest.org. today's Backyard Quiz, we asked if you knew the name of the game that is part of the story behind the original place name of the Lanikai area, Ka'ohau, which means to tie together or join together. According to the legend, two women were playing a game with a kahu who served as a high chief visiting from Hawaii Island. And after they were soundly defeated by the kahu, the women were bound together and led to his canoe. But instead of getting punished for the loss, they were released and rewarded with the stockpile of feathers that were in the canoes. The name Ka'ohau was then given to the area in commemoration of the event. Now, the original name was used until the 1920s when developer Charles Frazier divided the area into 32 vacation home lots and renamed the area Lanikai. The ancient game in the story is played on a rectangular board with white and black pieces similar to checkers. The name of the game is Konani, the answer that we were looking for. And congrats to Brad of Coloco, you are the winner. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one you'd like to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Tioki Trading, featuring HDC water purification systems for pools, spas, and the whole home. Serving Hawaii for 40 years, learn more by calling 834-2722. As a child, Julissa Arce never felt like she truly belonged in the U.S., even when she spoke fluent English and tried everything to just fit in. The question of where are you from? Yes. From? <laughs> yes. I still get that. Always come up. There's just so much in that second from. The case for rejecting assimilation and embracing yourself and your culture. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon, following Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. It was five years ago this month that the school community of what was then Lanikai Elementary asked to change its name to reflect a sense of place. Ka'ohau was the name of the area before developers came up with the name Lanikai to help sell, sell homes in the neighborhood. We talked to Principal Winston Sakurai about how quickly the community was able to move forward with the name change because of the charter school process. As a charter school, our governing board has a certain authority over operations of the school and we work with our charter school commission as well uh, to make sure that we do everything in line and so when the idea of a name change came up it really was something that was a whole community effort and everyone was on board to change it from Lanikai Elementary to uh, Kao House School. And so share with our listeners who may not know the story about how it came to be Lanikai our understanding is that the developers of this area chose a name in order to promote their new development. And so the original name of the area was called Kaohao. That means tying together or joining together. And there's uh, many, uh, many years of Hawaiian history that is linked to this land 
uh, currently here. So the the tradition of uh, you know uh, joining together, tying together was was a big part of of the area, and it continued on uh, for many years, even with a name change. But the school wanted to adopt the original name as a kind of a reminder to everyone that this is a special place uh, on on Oahu. So I guess it goes to what a sense of place, right? Yeah, and, and you know the importance of words and names can't be diminished. If, if you don't use the words and you don't call things by their name, you lose that history. And you know we didn't want to lose that history. There are many uh, who are still in the area that remember you know the area being called Kaohao, and to perpetuate that for many generations beyond uh, when we leave. The school is going to be a fine representation of what the area represents and, and who we are as, as a community. Can you describe kind of what you know that process was, you know, getting the buy-in from, from the neighborhood, from the school community? It's a rich history. So back in, I, I believe, 2015, our Kumu for our Papaike Hawaii, our Hawaiian Studies uh, teacher, came and shared the, the stories of Kaohao with the students and the staff. And so as they started to... Uh, Learn the word Kaohao, uh, the, the students actually went, why is our name of the school called Lankai instead of Kaohao? And they began the whole process of understanding um, the roots of the word, uh, why, uh, why the name was changed to Lankai. And they, they were a little confused as to why uh, we were continuing to keep the name Kaohao. So they actually uh, went and started discussing with the, with the staff, uh, with the, the board, and really the impetus was to uh, rededicate the school to represent the Aina, the land that school sat upon. And so they do go, go to the board, they got community support, and in, in unity, like that tying together, in unity, uh, they came together to support the name uh, from Lanikai Elementary to Kaohao School. And it's a, it's a wonderful story of how uh, sharing uh, the oral history of, of the community uh, from our Kumu going to the ears of our students and then turning into action uh, for the name change. It's, it's a wonderful journey uh, that the school took and uh, to have the buy-in from, from everyone uh, really was uh, super important. And uh, it, it was a student-led effort. It was a sharing of, of stories uh, from those in the community. Uh, and we're so proud of uh, the efforts to make that change. And it, again, it's a representation of who we are now as a school and the land that we, uh, the, the land that the school sits on. Other schools that have had their names changed or are contemplating it, you know, as in McKinley High, right? I mean, that th- th- there's a lot, I guess, of emotion that's tied in with the name, uh, particularly, you know, McKinley has had so many prominent community leaders come from that school. And, and when your alma mater, you know, when the lyrics in, in your school song have the McKinley name and you change it. I mean, it, 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 it just tugs at everybody's heart. Yeah, you know, that's, that's really a, a thing, right? Because the, the school that you go to uh, re- really represents who you are as a person, especially here in Hawaii. You know, one of the things that uh, whenever a school goes through a name change, it is, it is a difficult, difficult conversation to have, but it's, it's a worthwhile conversation. Uh, regardless of what the decision is at the end, to, to share what the uh, alumni, uh, the current student body, uh, the community members, you know, desire in their hearts for, for their school to continue on as. I think for our school, it was a little bit easier because, uh, again, the place that it, it sits upon, the Aina, the land, was called Kaohao. And so it made a change of an uh, elementary school uh, relatively simple because the backing was uh, really coming from, and the impetus of it was really coming from the students' inquiry into how our name came about in the first place. So it was a great project-based learning experience, even though it, was, it wasn't it was designed that way, but it was actually something that they led their inquiring minds to turn into action again. And then do you have a school song? We don't have a song, but there are uh, different uh, melees that uh, are sung uh, by the students. And there is a, um, there's a ballad that our governing board chair wrote as well as kind of a poem uh, to the school. We, we're we're uh, continuing to, to grow as a school. It's been five years now uh, that our, our school, we're approaching the anniversary of, of the name change. And, uh, you know, again, it's a wonderful thing to see the joining together of students uh, in, in this effort. Like you said, the process then was a lot simpler for the char- as a charter school. 
Yeah, and I think as an elementary school as well, the process is a little different uh, because you know the uh, you know high school alma maters are um, very prominent uh, for uh, for people. Uh, when it comes to elementary schools, uh, especially when you look into the eyes and, and hear the words of of uh, young people as they're speaking about uh, the reasons for these name changes uh, to take place, it's uh, it's an education that they provide to the adults that really allows us to contemplate reasons for taking a stand and, and representing the area and the land as it was originally called. I think that's where you see uh, action really taking place because it's coming again from the keiki. We've been hearing from Winston Sakurai, principal of Kaohao School, formerly known as Lanikai Elementary. Sakurai was talking about the process of changing names of a school and how easy it was under their charter school process. We should mention Sakurai cut his teeth serving as the youngest uh, serving member of the regular school board. Well, we are out of time right now, but up tomorrow, we plan to hear from Deputy State Health Director Kathleen Ho on the status of the Red Hill emergency response and the long-term outlook. We do welcome feedback on our talkback line. Call us, 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at Hawaii Public Radio. And, you know, email works too, Hawaii Pub- Hawaii, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.